Today's, uh, today's the yard site of my wife's, Rifki's grandmother, Rachel Basanacham and Rachel, for whom our daughter Racheli uh, was named. Um, as we're in the midst of Sheva Brachos for uh, Racheli still. And today's uh, my, uh, her, her great-grandmother's yard site. So our learning today should be as an alien for the Rishama of Rachel Basanacham. Uh, and we start uh, Sefer Shmos. So we learn together uh, parsh, uh, all of Sefer Bracious. Uh, let's move into Sefer Shmos. So what I'd like to learn together uh, this afternoon, the, these parshas are so packed, is the gradations of how Klali Yisrael ends up in servitude. There are three different stages that Paro implements into getting the Jewish people to the stage that we eventually are familiar with in our Pesach story of complete and total servitude. Each one requires a lot more time than we're going to spend this morning, but at least to get through, because there's, there's just so much richness, there's so much to learn and derive uh, from these various episodes. So let's start together. We're on page 292. Beginning of Sefer Shmos, uh, the opening paragraph, which Amir Tzashem will do another year in depth. The opening paragraph begins with the names, the Sefer, the name Shmos, of course, means names. Eila Shmos B'nei Yisrael, the Torah tells us the names of the Jews who came down from Mitzrayim, Yaakov and all of his 12 sons and the 70 souls that came down uh, with them. And then the Torah tells us how Yosef and all the brothers died and we've now entered into the next generation in Mitzrayim. And that's where we're going to pick up our story in verse uh, eight, Pasuk Ches, on the bottom of the page, page 292, Vayakam Melech Chadosh al-Mitzrayim, Asher lo yado es Yosef. So the Torah begins our story, a new king, a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Yosef. Yosef, of course, was a major figure in Mitzrayim. All these years of famine, everybody would have died, nobody had any food. Yosef is the savior, and now a new king arises who does not know Yosef. Interestingly, the Gemara quotes two opinions, Rashi mentions this, between Rav and Shmuel, two of the sages of the Talmud, whether or not we are to read this Pasuk literally or figuratively. One, the Gemara says, reads it literally. There's a new king, a new king arose who did not know Yosef. As it happens, as time goes on, new kings come and new kings go, and the old king is gone, the new king is in, and the new king doesn't know of Yosef, and that's what allows the story to progress. And the other one says, no, this is the same old king. He made himself as if he didn't know Yosef, and that's how the story uh, so it's an interesting debate because the Torah does not say that the old king died, which it usually does. It just says a new king arose, which, uh, so the Gemara debates whether or not it's the same king, the same Paro, and it used to be a friend, and now doesn't want, pretends as if he doesn't know, or whether or not it's actually a new king. Either way, either way, great lessons. It's such an insight into sometimes, you know, when a new regime comes... So all of a sudden, all that happened before, I, I, I don't know, I don't care, and all sorts of problems. I could just tell you, I, as the new guy in town, um, as the new guy in town, people always ask, like, what's the hardest part of coming in? You're the new rabbi. It's with, hands down, the, my straightest, straightforward, quickest answer always is, when you, know, when you come in, there is 50 years of institutional knowledge of events that have happened with people Two people, everyone else knows that, yeah, this is part of our culture. This is part of the history. This is, these are who everybody is. And you don't know any of that. You just don't have the history. You don't know what's been. That's the hardest part. 
because there's almost an assumption that obviously you know this, and the answer is no, I, I don't. I didn't. I didn't know who that person was. I didn't know what had happened here, and that's hard. That's just there's there's no way to go back in time. It just is, but it creates a difficulty in that not knowing what was. So the so the Torah describes that the sages argue exactly what it is that happened here. Was this a scenario of no? Somebody knew, and they just simply didn't care about what had happened in the past. They didn't know Yosef, and they weren't interested. Or, which is the other option, sometimes things change and you're best friends one day and then all of a sudden it's as if you've totally forgotten about all the kindness and all the things that people have done. It's as if you've turned over a fresh page. And so the Gemara debates exactly how this happens. But either way, this new paro wants to set up as something out against the Jews. So let's go through the different stages as to how it develops. Vayomer el Amo, he says to his nation, this Melech Chadash, this new uh, king, Look, these Jews, they are great and numerous in number. Rav Hirsch, Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch points out, he had no actual claim against us. There was nothing that the Jew did to be able to point to and say, this is why they're a problem other than... They're too big, numerous, and greater than we are, which is just an interesting... Rav Hirsch sees in this all the anti-Semitism over the centuries. He sees lots of different references. Maybe one day we'll go through his entire approach to this uh, inside. But he sees... There's no claim. He doesn't say they're scoundrels. He doesn't say they cheat. He doesn't say they're stealing. Just as they're big, they're numerous, and they're becoming powerful. Hava nishak Therefore, let us scheme against them. Let us outsmart them, lest they become numerous. And if a war will break out, they will join our enemies. And then they will wage war against us and go up from the land. So what's the fear? There'll be a war and they're going to join in. And either they will leave or they'll kick us out. But this is, the, uh, this is the issue. Let's take a look at that opening phrase in Pasuk Yud. Hava nishak ma'lo. What is the word nishak ma? What's the shorish? Where does that come from? Chacham. excellent. So, uh, which is why it's translated as, we need to outsmart them. We need to scheme, plan, come up with something about them. The sages say they, they came up with various plans. The one that the sages uh, quote in the Gemara is that Paro himself went out to work as we're going to see their first stage of their plan was to get the Jews to work. So Paro himself went out to work uh, in the, with the bricks. And uh, if any Jew were to say, as they were beginning the work, I can't, I'm not able to say, are you better than Paro? Are you, are you more of an instance? Are you more refined? Are you too sent? Paro himself is out there. So they came out with various plans to get all the Jews. They began by paying them, and then they took away the wages and various things of nishak malo. But what's, what's part of the phrase, hava nishak malo? What does the word lo mean? To him. What should it have said? To them. It should have been in plural. Hava nishak lohem. Let us outsmart them is what it should have said. So the sages always note when there's an oddity in language, be it grammar or anything else, because what really, the way that this is expressed is let us outsmart him, singular. So Rashi says two things. Rashi says, well, the simplest meaning of that would be who's the him referring to? The nation as a singular nation. Sometimes we refer to in Hebrew a nation as an am in the plural, and sometimes we refer to it as a singular nation. So on the simplest level, hava nishak malo would mean let us outsmart 
him singular referring to the Jewish people. But whenever you have an oddity, the sages peel back the onion to reveal other layers. If there was a singular person, hava, a person or thing, entity, hava nishak malo, let us outsmart him. The sages say is a capital H. Let us outsmart him, Hashem, God, in how we're going to attack the people. And Rashi quotes as follows. What did they mean? They knew they have this tradition, this misora, that Hashem always punishes amida kenege and mida. Whatever you do, if you're, going to get, if you're going to get punished back, you get punished in the way that you do something. So they said to themselves like this. They said, we know that one of the things that Hashem already unleashed in the world back in the times of Noah, He unleashed a flood. And if you remember the oath that Hashem himself took at the end of the flood, he said, never again. So the, so, so the sages see when Paro said, let us outsmart him, let's attack the Jews in a way involving water, which eventually is, of course, the Nile. Why should we use water to attack the Jews? Because we'll be safe from retribution, because he can't attack us back with water, because we know that God already took an oath not to flood the world again. So let's outsmart God himself, and we'll attack the Jews with water, through water, because we're protected from water. He's not going to flood the world ever again. That's how, what Rashi quotes from the sages, that are outsmarting, so to speak. Well, we're going to figure out a way to outsmart uh, God. Rashi himself already says their plan didn't work because God only took an oath not to flood the entire world, but to flood a region, or the Egyptians eventually do get the retribution through water at, at the Amsuf. They eventually they do get it with water. But that was their plan. They were going to try to outsmart. So I wanted to share a beautiful comment, the Maharal. So what are the two interpretations of Hava Nitzchak Molo? Let us outsmart him. Either it means Am Yisrael, or the Lo, the him is referring to Hashem. The morale always likes to show how the depths of Chazal, the statements, are really a level of pshat. It's right in the word. Either it means the Jewish people or it means Hashem. So the morale says a beautiful thing. They're really very close together, those two interpretations, the Jewish people or Hashem. What makes a nation into a nation? In general. What makes a nation into a nation? Think in, in, in the world. So that you're already, that's already a higher level thing. We're going to get to that. But before, if you were to ask a non-Jew on the street, what makes a nation into a nation? They would not tell you the same belief. Do we have one belief in the United States of America? No. Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. What makes us into a nation here? A leader. Even before a leader. Country. Usually a land. Usually it starts with land. If you have a, a similar land, you're all at the same country. Your country is your country. Your nation is your nation because you all are in the same place. If you're born in this country, you become... American, just by being born here. You're born in the land, you are an immediate citizen, and it's the, it's the land which makes you into a nation. The Jewish people, does our land make us into a nation? Now, our land is important. Eretz Yisrael is super important. It's a, you know, the promise given to Avram, to Yitzchak, to Yaakov. We yearn, we wait to go home. But at the end of the day, we've been 2,000 years without a land. Are we still a nation? Without a land? Yes. Because it's, it's, it's not land which makes us into a nation. We have a homeland, but we haven't even been in it. Now we've been Zohar the last hundred years to return in mass, but for 2,000 years, that, we, that wasn't. Some nations can say what makes them into a nation is a shared set of cu- a culture. They have a culture that makes them unified into a nation. And can we say that about the Jewish people, that all of the Jews have the same culture? 
No. I don't know if I would really. Certainly not over the exile. Certainly not dispersed. We have all different sorts of cultures. What is it that makes the Jewish people into a nation? So that goes back to our faith. At the end of the day, we are defined, and this is why sociologists have a real trouble, by the way, with the Jewish people, because we are an anomaly of a nation, because we don't share a land, we don't share a culture, we don't share a language, Jews all over the world. We're like a family, but we're a nation, and we're, we're a, a really unique mix of what defines a person as uh, as, as a person. For example, uh, a Christian can just say the words, I believe, and they become like, they're, they're able, they're, they're unified simply by belief without necessarily, well, let's leave, let's leave that, it's a little bit more complicated. A Jew has to be in the family. If a person, if a non-Jew wants to believe or even practice, but doesn't actually convert, You're not in the family. You have to be part of that. A Jew who's born a Jew and does nothing is still a Jew. Because we're a family and we're a religion. And at the center of it all, what binds us is is a belief, a connection to Hashem. Even a Jew who doesn't recognize or understand that that is at the end of the Jewish nation. We are an Am Echad with an Hashem Echad. Who is like the Jews? And that's what, that's what binds us. That at the, we're at the, at the core of what binds the Jew is the fact that we are attached to Hashem. We are attached to eternity through our connection to Hashem. That's how we survive. We, it doesn't make sense that we've survived the exile. That, there's no logical explanation of what we've been through between the pogroms and the crusades and the holocaust and everything else in between. There's no way that we could have possibly survived. But we're connected to eternity. Someone else says, Hava nishak malo, let us out-scheme or outsmart him, is that one interpretation is referring to the Jewish people. The word lo, him, refers to us. And the other term, the word lo, refers to? Yeah, that, that we, the Jewish people, are connected as one. Why are we a singular nation? Through our singular belief in Hashem Echad. And those two interpretations of the word lo are connected to that. Okay, let's go. We have a lot to do. Flipping the page. So power is a concern. So what's stage one? Top of page 294. So they place taskmasters on top of the Jews. To afflict them with burdens. So they made them work. That's the first stage. To enslave them. To make them work. They said taskmasters, they have to build cities. Does this work? Not at all. The terror says, Kasher anu oso. It's an amazing story of Jewish history. The more the Jew is afflicted, the more that he spreads out, the more that he increases. It's a, you know, the, the imagery, so to speak, of the plague of frogs, which we're going to get to soon, Svardeya, the famous Chazal, that the, the children come home from school with Rashi quotes it, that they would beat it with a stick. And every time they would beat it with a stick, what would happen? Divide. Right? The frogs would divide and make more of them. Is an image the more that Paro would attempt to annihilate the Jew, the more that they would somehow just come back. And this is, just tie back, if you remember the bracha, we discussed this bracha, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, each were given a different bracha. We have three brachas, like the stars of the heavens, like the sand of the sea, and ka'afar ha'ar, it's like the dust of the earth. And if you remember, we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago, what's the difference between those What's the difference between those blessings? So the stars of the heaven, each one, each star is a world unto itself. 
The sand is a blessing. A grain of sand is not meaningful, but it's only a meaningful in its numbers. And the dust of the earth, what was that blessing? Remember how the Maral understood that? That dust always comes back. No matter what you do to clean your house and dust your house, if you go away just for an hour or two, you come back, there it is again. You cannot get rid of it. It will always, always come back and come back stronger. And that's the bracha of the Jewish people. No matter what happens, we will always, and the nations, the frustration of the nations of the world, no matter what they've done, and they have schemed like no, nothing else, doesn't matter. Come back, and you look at the Jews in, in both outside the land of Israel, in the land of Israel, like how is it possible that we are as strong and as numerous after all that we've been through? 70 years ago, that's a blessing. And that starts, and the more that Paro uh, afflicted them, Okay, so when they tried, it's still part of this first phase. They worked them even harder. Back-breaking labor by Yomaru as Chayehem. They made their lives bitter, of course. We're familiar with that phrase from Maror. Bricks and mortar out in the field. It was just crushing harshness. Again, there's more to talk about, but let's just deal with it at... That's it. That's stage one. Backbreaking work. Did it work? It enslaved them. Did it get rid of them or cause them to be less numerous? No. So power moves into phase two. Phase two begins. Pasuk tes va. So power then pulls aside his Jewish um, midwives. Now the Torah names them as Shifra and Pua. Rashi, of course, tells us that the sages understood them to be Yocheved and Miriam. Yocheved was Miriam's mother and Miriam, excuse me, Moshe's, Miriam, Moshe's mother and Miriam, Moshe's sister. But the Torah identifies them at this point as Shifra and Pua, which is a... Uh, a Yes, another, and Rashi is why they got those names, but the Torah does not identify anyone from Moshe's family by name until after Moshe is born. Happens later in our parsha, um, which is a separate, I, let's, let, remind me if we have time to get back to that. But at this point, they're called Shifra and, Shifra and Pua. Vayomer, he says to them, as you birth the Jewish women, I mean, you're standing there on the birthstone, they're in labor, if you see it's going to be a boy, kill him. But if it's going to be a girl, then you can let her live. Why only the boys? Why was Paro after the boys? So that's a logical approach. What does Rashi say? Rashi quotes that Paro had astrologers. They show up often. We're going to talk about them later today as well. The Astanigas, the, the, the readers of the stars, who said to Paro, there's going to be a Moshiach, there's going to be a savior of the, of the Jews. This young man is going to be born who's going to lead them out. So Paro tries to, so to speak, quietly address this issue by taking the maidservants aside and commanding them, when you see the boys, if it's a boy, you'll knock out the boy. Now that's going to have a secondary effect as well. Obviously, if you kill out all the boys, you're going to have a massive decrease of, uh, in population. But that's not the main, the main course of action, because if you really wanted to decrease population, which one of the two genders should you knock out? Obviously, the women. 
because it only takes one man. If you have a hundred women and one man is alive, technically speaking, all those women can have babies. But if you have only one woman and a hundred men, you're still only going to have one baby a year. So technically, if he was after genocide at this point, he would have gone after the girls. That's why the sages say it wasn't so much he was after the numbers, but he knew that their savior was going to be born. And so he goes after the boys. So he just pulls aside two young women and says, you take care of this for me. However, the Torah says, These two midwives feared Hashem. And did not do like the king of Mitzrayim had spoken to them. And they caused the boys to live. So two things here. They, they certainly, I would imagine, had a fear of Paro. But who did they fear more than Paro? Hashem. They feared Hashem more than Paro. Not only did they not kill the babies as they were born, the Torah says, they gave them what they needed to live. So there's two Rashi's that they gave them food, they provided warmth, whatever they needed. Meaning there are two stages. Whenever we have options, there's sometimes like just I'm sitting and doing nothing and not doing something evil. And then there's I'm actively doing something good. There's always, in life, we always have this situation of like, there's this negative, parv, and positive. So sometimes we're happy enough just being parv. I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything good. I'm just parv. It's good enough. Power wants them to do something negative. It would have been enough had they just left it at parv. But they then actively did more. They, they gave life uh, to, these, uh, to these boys as they were being uh, born. Therefore, the Torah tells us a whole conversation. So the, the king calls them. And he says, Why are you doing this? I told you to kill these boys. Why are you doing this? These Jewish women, they are not like the Egyptian women. It's a great phrase. How would you translate? Right? Literally, it translates as? Animals. Animals. We'll get this in a second. Before we're able to get to them, they've already given birth. So Rashi points out, what does it mean? So he says the two interpretations. The simple interpretation is, as the article here translates it as, they were experts. They know what they're doing. Before we get to them, they've already had, uh, they're strong and experts, and we, we can't. You told us as they're being born to kill the boys, we, we run over, we get the call in the middle of the night, someone was having a baby, by the time we get there, it's too late. But Rashi says, but that interpretation is built also on the literal translation of ki chayos. But how does an animal have a baby? All by itself. It doesn't, there's no midwife delivering uh, animal babies. Hashem, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's worth just taking this opportunity to mention in the animal world, you know, I'm sure you've all seen the National Geographic, the videos and the movies of animals uh, birthing their young. It's an amazing thing. You know, the, this elephant is out in the middle of the field all by herself, and this baby elephant plops out of her. And in, in like three seconds, right, the mother like, you know, does a few things and like pushes the baby up. And it takes a few wobbly steps. And then that's it. He's on his way. 
Right? It's an amazing thing. And that's, and that's how it goes in, in the animal. All of them, some take a little bit more time, a little bit less time, but they're pretty much pretty independent in a very relatively short period of time. And the top of the life chart, the human being, this Selim Elohim, created in the image of Hashem. And when a baby is born, besides for the fact that we have midwives and we need all sorts of care and, and thank God with modern medicine, the, the danger of childbirth, which it used to be and throughout all of human history is far, far less, thank God. But when a baby is born, it's the most incapable, helpless creature uh, out of all, yeah, you put a baby without care, just put it, you know, there's no chance. Absolutely zero chance of survival of a human baby on its own. The animal babies, you know, maybe it's a smaller chance. There's certainly a chance. Some of, the, some of them are just literally born without mother to do anything. They just hatch and they're, they're gone. They figure it out on their own. So it's an interesting thing. But so what language do, does Yocheven and Miriam say to Paro? And Paro says, how come you're not fulfilling my wishes? They're chayot from the language, but they're experts, which is built on the language of they're strong, like yeah, they don't need us. They don't need us midwives. They know exactly what they're doing, and they're able to accomplish this on, uh, on our own. The Torah then has a, a narrative, a, a parenthetical comment um, in Pasuk Chavana. We just had this whole dialogue between Paro and these ladies. So Hashem does good to these midwives. Number one, the people became increased and very strong as if that's a benefit to them, to Miriam and to Yocheved. Look at what happened. The, the, the Jews continued to grow. And Hashem makes them houses. Rashi points out the houses that, that Hashem made for them was the house of Kohuna and Leviah and Malchus. That from these two women, Yocheved and Miriam, priests, Levim and kings would eventually descend from their descendants in, in reward for their disregarding Paro's command and taking care of the Jewish babies. That was stage two. So first they put them to work. That didn't work. They just continued to increase, continued to expand. So then Paro tries to these two midwives, you'll knock off the boys because my astrologer said the Moshian eventually will be born and that doesn't work because they disregard him. And then the third and final stage is one Pasuk on the top of page 296. And Paro commanded everyone. Forget about killing them as they're being born. Any baby that's born throw him into the Nile, but you can keep the daughters alive. I'm only after, only after the boys. This Pasuk has a lot in it, this third stage. Paro commands to the entire nation, all the sons that are born, throw them into the Nile, and all the daughters you can let live. Okay, two things jump out, or let's start with the first one. Who is Paro commanding at this point? Right, L'cholamo, his entire nation. What does he want them to do? Kill who? Which boys? So, so the, the Torah is very vague. In the simplest reading in context, which... We're going to get there. Which boy? The simplest reading in context. We just had Paro telling, Paro telling uh, uh, Yocheven and Mir Shifra and Pua to kill the Jewish kids. 
They don't listen. So he turns to his whole nation. The simplest reading of the Pasuk would be, Kola ben Hayilod, all the Jewish, we're going to get to your, what's that? Or the simplest reading, we're going to get to it, all the Jewish boys, meaning it didn't work when I told Shifra and Pua as they were being born. But now I'll command my entire nation, if you see a Jewish boy, throw him into the Nile. That's the simplest reading. We're going to get to what you're, what you're all saying in a second. So Rav Hirsch points out, Rav Hirsch points out, why does he turn to his entire nation? So Rav Hirsch points out, this is an impossible task he's asking. He's asking people to take babies, which we just discussed, are the most helpless creatures on earth, and throw them into the Nile. That's a difficult task. So why does he command his entire nation to do so? So Rav Hirsch says in this insight into human nature, most people, most people would never do such a thing. A human being being told to take another, I mean, what had the Jews done to anybody at this point? What had they done that would make them in their mind, you know, Hitler Yemachshimo had to create an entire campaign to make the Jew into something like vermin to allow. But what did the Jew, in Mitzrayim, what had we done? There was, people wouldn't do such a thing. But, he writes, Rafersh, every society, every society has a segment of the society that is total, uh, what should we call them? Uh, riffraff isn't strong enough. Psychopaths. Psychopaths, uh, the dregs of society. Every society has a certain elements that are evil, that will do it. But how do you reach them? So Rafersh says this approach was, he commands everyone to do this. 90% of the people would say, I'll never, I'll never do such a thing. But the 10 who are inclined to such evil, who are inclined to violence, have now been given permission. And everyone, so it's not like we have to sneak around doing it because the king commanded everyone to do this. So it unleashes that small percentage to run around looking to fulfill their bloodthirsty natures, which under normal circumstances are kept down by society. But by commanding everyone, he was going to find that small percentage and unleash them, and we'll get the job done in terms of being able to find and come. That's, how, that's the simplest meaning. But, so there's the stage three would be, he tried working them hard, then he tried Yocheved and Miriam to kill the Jewish boys as they're being born. That doesn't work. So he tells everybody, you go find those Jewish babies. There'll be enough from the Egyptians who will find enough. I'll figure we'll do this job. And that hopefully will work. That's Pyro's third stage. But the sages noted, when you read this Pasuk out of context, if you just had this one Pasuk, as you correctly translated, if you just read it as, Vayitzav Paro l'chol amolemor, Paro commanded his entire nation and said, Kol habein hayilod hayyora, all boys born are thrown in. Which boys is he referring to? Everyone. That's the simplest meaning of the Pasuk. So the sages say, indeed, on the next level interpretation, Paro commanded every boy had to be thrown into the Nile River. Every boy. So Rashi quotes, even Egyptians. Rashi quotes, why should that be? So Rashi says an amazing thing. Rashi says like this. On this day that Paro makes this command, his astrologers again come to him and they say, Paro, this is the day. This is the day that the Moshiach, the Savior of the Jews, is going to be born. We know it's going to be a boy. 
We know it's today, and we know that his downfall will be in water. Which, of course, Moshe was born, and how did Moshe, what was his downfall? The hitting of the rock with the water, it's true. So they picked up in their reading of the stars that today is the day the Savior is going to be born, his downfall is in water, but we just don't know if he's going to be born of a Jewish mother or an Egyptian mother. So Paro says, everyone into the water today. All baby boys born today, lechol amo, to his entire nation, kol habain, every son born today, into the Nile, everyone is killed specifically today. That's how Rashi quotes what, what this particular, this last stage was. He was so... Uh, crazed by trying to capture this last Jewish boy who's going to save the Jewish people, that that's what he does. So far, so good? The Moral asks the following question. These astrologers, this concept of astrology, reading the stars, is an interesting thing because apparently they knew what they were doing. They knew which day he was going to be born. They knew it's today. That they knew. They knew how was the Savior going to be, what was his downfall going to be? And they were right. And then they didn't know whether or not he would be born of a Jewish mother or an Egyptian mother. Like all of a sudden there, their signals got crossed. All of a sudden the reception got fuzzy. They know so much. They know he's going to be born today. We know his downfall is water. We just don't know if he's going to be a Jew or an Egyptian. Why? That's a strange thing. So the Moral says like this. It's a beautiful thing. We've discussed this in a different context once before as well. When a child is born and raised... There are various components to the raising of a child, the making of a human being. On the one hand, we have the simple genetic material that creates a human being, which comes from mother and father. They produce a child. Mother, of course, has a larger role in that, giving birth and carrying the child. But at the end of the day, when the baby is born and you put the baby down on the table, what is the source of this child? We have parents, we have a mother, father, that created this child. Okay, but now we just have, as we've mentioned a couple times today, a helpless human being, a ball of potential, but right now, just a little baby. And then this child has to grow, has to be raised. And as we all know, if you raise a child in the, in the jungle, you're going to get a jungle child. You have to, we have to instruct, we have to teach, we have to teach or, uh, uh, morals and ethics and values and how to raise a child. It's a lot to do, raising a child. So that aspect is usually done by the same mother that birthed the child. That's usually the scenario. Mother gives birth to a child and raises the child. But as we all know in life, it's not always the case. Very often, for various reasons, the birth mother is not able to raise the child and someone else raises the child. That scenario then creates one mother, so to speak, that produced the genetic material to give birth to the child. That's half the story. And then there was a different mother that raised the child. How do we view these two components? So we see in Torah thoughts, both of those components, I don't know if to say equal, but are given pretty much equal value in the sense of who is the mother of the child, there's half is the physical mothering, giving birth, and then there's raising, and they're both viewed as a mother. Where do we see this first? Where was the first time we came across this idea? Sarah, if you remember, cannot have a child. 
And so what does she say? What does she come up with? What, what's her idea? Take Hagar, she says to Avram. Maybe I'll be able to be built through her. How is this going to help Sarah? What was this going to help? So Hagar has a baby. Why, why is that? Because she was going to raise her. This is what we spoke about, right? Sarah's thought process was, I can't produce the genetic material. Okay. But if you give me a child through Hagar, I will take that child from birth. From that point on, it will be my child and I will be built through her because this child will be raised in the way of Avraham and Sarah through me, even though I didn't birth this child, but I will have, so to speak, given birth to this child. The Gemara uses a phrase that anyone who raises a Yasim, if a person, uh, Nebuch, loses a mother and a father as an orphan and you raise the orphan in your home, ki'ilu yaladu. The Gemara uses a phrase that says if you birth that child. You didn't physically, but you raised her. Two components. In Moshe's world, who was his mother? So Moshe has a birth mother, Yocheven. Yocheven gave birth to him. And shortly after, he's three months old, he's put on a little uh, raft and sent down the Nile and found by Basparo. Basparo can't nurse him. This is all later in our parasha. Miriam was waiting in the reeds, says, would you like me to get a wet nurse to, to feed the baby? Sure, which they do. However long that lasts, maybe another year or two. And then what happens to Moshe? Goes back to, Goes back to Paro. When does Moshe next appear on the scene? Vayigdal Hayelad, he grows up. He goes out to see what's going on with his brethren. And he's already a, he's a young man. We don't know exactly how old he is, 16, he's a, he's a person. He had the whole episode with the killing of the Midian, and then he runs off to Midian. He grew up in the house of Paro. At some point, he's told who he is. It's a whole, this whole part of the story is just fascinating. When the astrologers say to Paro, we know that he's going to be born today. We know that his downfall is over water, and we're just not sure if he's going to be born of a Jewish woman or an Egyptian, say like, you're, you're such good astrologers, you know all this, and you can't tell that? The answer is yes, they couldn't, because he had two mothers. He did. He had a Jewish mother who birthed him, got a little bit of time with him, and he has an Egyptian mother who raised him for a good chunk of his life. So it wasn't that their, their, their wires were crossed and it suddenly became blurry, their ability to read the stars. Moshe had... Two sources of being raised. And so the astrologers say to Paro, we can't figure out what's going on. And Paro's response is, send them all into the Nile. And he's, to all of his nation, everybody goes into the river, both Jew and Egyptian, because it was unclear who the Savior was going to come from, because he had both elements. And on that one particular day, all children were thrown into the Nile, both Jew and uh, Egyptian. Those are the three stages in which we see first servitude. That didn't help. They just continued to increase. The more that you beat them down, the more that they expanded. Then he tries Yocheven and Miriam, like under the radar. Let's just try to knock them off in a way that nobody would know. That doesn't work. And then he just says to his entire nation, everybody get involved. Everybody's going to suffer, but we're going to knock off these Jews one way or another. And that, of course, does not work as well from his own house comes the Savior, which is always the, in the irony of Jewish history. It is from the house of Paro that the Savior of the Jewish people is raised, is fed, is clothed, grows up in the house of Paro in the great ironies 
Um, there's a lot in that message as well. The things that we think are the source of our destruction, and at the time, if you would have told the Jew that their Savior would come from the house of power, he would it's impossible. It's impossible. Power is the one causing all of our problems. How could our Savior come from his household? And from what would be considered a son of his, because his own daughter raises Moshe, it's impossible. Yeah, of course it's impossible, but Hashem is impossible. So the things that our, our redemption comes in ways that are totally, just when you... Just when you feel like it couldn't happen this way. Yeah, that, that, from the very beginning. That's the things that we think are not the way that it's going to happen. Shem's running the show. So, of course, it's not the way that we would think it would happen. Um, and then, here we see in this, in this opening uh, story here of Sefer Shmos, in terms of power's progression of how he wants to knock off the Jews, um, how it comes about. One last comment I'll just say, since this is the book of redemption, we've mentioned this also many, many times, but it just fits in what we just finished saying, in the redemption of the Jewish people that's unfolding in front of our eyes now, in the return to the land of Israel and the rebuilding of the land, we're literally watching redemption unfold in front of our eyes. So one of the, one of the really uh, astonishing facts, which we've gotten used to already at the stage of history we're at, but a hundred years ago, when the Jews were beginning their return, a little bit more than a hundred years, in the 1880s, in the first wave of Aliyah, and the beginning of the Zionist movement, as we mentioned many times, uh, the Zionist movement was a vehemently anti-religious, anti-Torah, anti-God. It was a, it was a secular, in, like not just we happen to be secular, it was very purposefully, and so the religious community didn't know what to do with the early Zionists because it was so anti-everything. That created a lot of fascinating Jewish history stuff that went on in the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Really, now already, it's, like it's, it's, it's not an issue as much anymore because it's like so obvious what's going on and how the land has developed, and this is good for the Jews. But at the beginning, it was very complicated because it was being f- developed by anti-religious, anti-Torah Jews, so who wanted to create a new Jew? Like, what would the, the religious community didn't know what to do? So I mentioned this, like, we, there's a lot to talk about. We'll, we'll get to where we've, we've started a little bit in Jewish history talking about this. But just the one point of one of the, the ways that it's phrased as from the religious community looking at it was like, listen, we've been praying for 2,000 years for redemption. This is not what redemption looks like. This is the opposite of this. Can't be. How can this be what we've been praying for? And the answer is, the Savior came from the house of Paro. Like, this is not what you thought it was going to be? Okay, very nice. Just because we think things should go in a certain direction, that's, it never, that's, this is not the way, we're not running the world here. And so just because in our minds, things are not going the way that they're supposed to, it, it got worse. And when Moshe shows up, we're going to see this again and again. When Moshe first shows up at the end of our parasha, the very last psukim of our parasha, Moshe shows up. The Savior is here. It gets good for the Jews or it gets worse for the Jews? gets far worse. It gets so bad that they don't even want to see Moshe. So, so bad that Moshe turns to Hashem and says, why'd you send me? That's the end of our parsha. This is the path. Like, we, just because we don't see it, just keep reading. Like, that's, it, that's from the very beginning of our story of redemption. This is the pattern that we see. The, it comes out of the house of Paro. How can that be? That's what happens. Moshe comes and it gets worse. Yes. That's redemption. So things don't always go the way that we think it's going to. We didn't imagine that the, fate, the state would be founded by irreligious Jews. Okay, so you didn't think that's how it was going to happen. That's how it happened. You know, like, just that's, we, we see snippets of this in so many different ways. Um, there's so much more to talk about, but we'll leave it at that for now. And uh, wishing everyone an awesome day. And we'll continue our story of Shmos uh, next week.